five bodies laid strewn upon the hot Port Kaituma runway. NBC News cameraman Bob Brown was riddled with bullets, hardly holding on to life. An armed militant walked over to him. Brown's camera was rolling the entire time. He had been filming Congressman Leo Ryan and his party as they boarded the plane to leave Jonestown, and the whole attack had been caught on tape. At the beginning of the video, Ryan looked happy, chatting with the journalists and staffers as they stowed their luggage. The footage shows a tractor-trailer park across the airstrip as heavily armed men jumped onto the pavement and opened fire. The publicly released portion of the film abruptly stops there. By the time the attack was over, Leo Ryan was lying just a few feet away from Bob Brown, covered head to toe in bullet holes. His plan to rescue the People's Temple members trapped at the Jonestown compound had backfired fatally. By the end of the day, over 900 people would be dead. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations on the Parcast Network. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our second and final episode on the assassination of Congressman Leo Ryan and the 1978 Jonestown Massacre. Once again, Greg and Vanessa from ParCast's other show, Cults, will be joining us today. Hi, Assassinations listeners. We'll be here to give further insight into the psychology of Jim Jones and his followers. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. The congressman's dead. Many of our traders are dead. They're all laying out there dead. As the South American skyline turned orange on the evening of November 18th, 1978, the survivors of the massacre on the Port Kaituma airstrip sat on the blood-soaked runway waiting for help to arrive. Leo Ryan, Bob Brown, Don Harris, Greg Robinson, and Patricia Parks still laid lifeless around the bullet-riddled plane. Ryan's top aide, Jackie Spear, Deputy Chief of Mission of the U.S. Embassy, Richard Dwyer, and seven others were badly injured in the shooting. Luckily, a small unit of Guyanese Defense Force soldiers had been stationed at the Port Kaituma radio tower just a few hundred yards away. As soon as they heard the gunfire, the soldiers immediately rushed to the scene to tend to the wounded victims. But it would be hours before more medical supplies or transportation could arrive from Georgetown. This was only one of several disasters the GDF needed to respond to that afternoon. At the same time the GDF unit radioed in about the shooting, the Army's Georgetown headquarters received an urgent call from the pilot of the first plane that had taken off from the Port Kaituma airstrip. Jim Jones' right-hand man, Larry Layton, had been tasked with shooting Leo Ryan. 
When he found himself aboard the plane that Ryan wouldn't be flying on, he changed strategy and attempted to shoot the plane's other passengers instead. Luckily, the passengers managed to subdue him. As soon as the plane touched down, Leighton was apprehended and thrown into a Guyanese prison. It was obvious that Congressman Ryan's trip to Jonestown had gone awry. But as tragic as the Port Kaituma incident was, it was nothing compared to what the GDF soldiers would find back at the compound. After Ryan and the party of defectors left the compound, Jim Jones gathered the rest of his followers into the pavilion where he delivered his sermons. He began, How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. Quote, How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. In spite of all that I've tried, there's no way to detach ourselves from what's happened today. The Jonestown loyalists believed Jones was referring to the few defectors that had just left. They had no idea what was happening at the airstrip. Jones spoke for about 45 minutes, and it was all tape recorded. Jones wanted his message to be properly documented, so his words couldn't be twisted or misconstrued. Because they stole their children, and we we are sitting here waiting on a powder keg. About a minute into the speech, Jones dropped the bomb. The congressman and his party were about to be killed. The world, the kingdom, suffers violence, and the violence shall take it by force. If we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. Jones proceeded to tell the crowd, quote, What's going to happen here in a matter of a few minutes is that one of the few on that plane is going to shoot the pilot. I know that. I didn't plan it but I know it's going to happen. He claimed that once the plane crashed and the congressman died, the U.S. government would come into Jonestown and kill everyone. They might as well take their lives into their own hands. Jones then motioned for the Temple medical staff to bring out buckets filled with Flavor-Aid and cyanide. Before we go any further, just a brief disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Bill. As we discussed last week, by isolating them from the outside world, depriving them of sleep, and subjecting them to constant manipulation and abuse, Jones had broken down the psychological defenses of his followers. By the time of November 1978, Jones and his followers had been in Guyana for over a year, and most of his followers were so thoroughly brainwashed that they were willing to do whatever Jones said. Take the portion like they used to take in ancient Greece and step over quietly because we are not committing suicide. It's a revolutionary act. The medical staff began to fill paper cups with the poison juice. They also filled syringes to inject anyone who refused to comply. Some of the faithful began lining up for their drinks, but others had questions. Anyone that has any dissenting opinion, please speak. The first to speak up was Christine Miller, who had joined the People's Temple just a year before. She had a rather contentious relationship with Jones. Yes, Christine. Is it too late for Russia? Jones had told the temple members that he was in constant communication with the Russian government and Russia was willing to accept them as refugees if the U.S. government ever were to invade Jonestown. Jones stumbled through his answer. He claimed that Russia would no longer accept them if they'd killed a U.S. congressman. 
it became quite clear to Christine that the Russia plan was all a lie. I said I'm afraid to die. I don't think no you means. are. I don't think you are. But uh, I look at our babies and I think they deserve I, to live. I agree. You know? They des- but also they deserve what's more that is their peace. Jones and Christine went back and forth for a few minutes. The other temple members started to become frustrated. One woman turned to Christine and said, she must be scared to die. Christine was stunned to see that most of her fellow members agreed with Jones. The time to die was now. Jones insisted that everyone needed to die, even the children. It was, quote, the will of sovereign being that this happened to us, that we lay down our lives in protest against what's been done, that we lay down our lives to protest in what's being done, the criminality of people, the cruelty of people. They invaded our privacy, they came into our home, they followed it 6,000 miles away. Red Brigade showed them justice, the congressman's dead. After about 22 minutes, Jones finally received word from Port Kaituma that Leo Ryan was dead. It was time to begin the next phase of the plan. Don't be afraid to die. If, you're, if these people land out here, they'll, they'll torture some of our children here. They'll torture our people. They'll torture our seniors. We cannot have this. In the recording, another woman told Jones, quote, You are. You are the only. You're the only, and I appreciate. The crowd roared with applause. He still had their faith. Jonestown survivors recall that they were conditioned to believe Jones was God, not in a metaphorical sense, but that he was literally a divine, omnipotent being. For many of them, this belief was so strong that they fully believed they'd be given eternal life in heaven if they obeyed Jones' orders and ended their lives. Jones motioned for his staff to pass out the cups and syringes. Panic began to set in around the pavilion. Jones suggested that the children be the first to drink the poison so the parents could ensure their children make it to heaven with them. When the army eventually made its way back to the compound, the babies would be killed anyway, or even worse, sent back to America. When I'm crying from pain, it's just a little bitter tasting, but they're they're not crying out of any pain. According to psychologist Dr. Keith Herreri, the children were too young and mentally undeveloped to be affected by Jones' brainwashing in the same way as the adults. As he wrote in an article for Psychology Today, quote, 276 children do not calmly kill themselves just because someone who claims to be God tells them to. End quote. But the adults believed they were doing the best thing for their children by forcing them to drink the poison anyway. Some parents began to forcibly pour the liquid into their children's mouths. Hundreds of children were crying in fear. Some parents sang to their babies to calm them, but it didn't help. As their children cried in agony, some parents began to drink the poison themselves. They wanted to make sure they joined their children in the afterlife, While most of the adults dutifully finished their cups, there was still some apprehension from others. That's when the Red Brigade stepped in. The brigade went from person to person, holding them at gunpoint and forcing them to finish their drinks. Most obliged out of fear. If they refused, the Red Brigade forced their mouths open, squirted syringes of cyanide into the back of their throats, and held their mouths shut until they swallowed. Autopsies indicated that some members had the poison forcibly injected into the back of their necks. This is nothing to cry about. 
This is something we should all rejoice about. We should be happy about this. They always tell us that we should cry when you're coming into this world. Despite the panic and violence, the dying temple members began to praise Jones for his passion and dedication. One man said that they should feel good about what was happening. To die in Jonestown was purer and more beautiful than to live elsewhere. Jones made one last plea to his followers. Don't, don't fail to follow my advice, you'll be sorry. Jones spoke to his followers for nearly 45 minutes. For 45 minutes, he watched 900 people drink poison, voluntarily and forcibly. People who had trusted him with their lives and the lives of their children. We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. Jones died shortly after the recording stopped. There was no trace of poison in his system, just a single gunshot to the head. The gun was found several feet away from his body. Investigators theorized that his personal nurse, Annie Moore, shot him either on his orders or of her own volition. Moore was one of the last people to die at Jonestown. Her body was found in Jones' residence, along with several other members of Jones' inner circle. Moore's body was pressed up against the door, blocking anyone from entering or leaving. Investigators concluded that she had given the poison to the other people in the cabin, watched them die, and then shot herself with a handgun. It wasn't until the next day that the Guyanese army managed to cut through the jungle into Jonestown. November is one of the hottest months in Guyana, and the extreme heat and humidity caused most of the bodies to bloat and rot in a matter of hours. The smell was horrendous and gut-wrenching. All told, 918 people died on November 18, 1978. A congressman, journalists, and hundreds of loyal devotees all killed on the orders of Jim Jones. We'll look at the aftermath of the Jonestown Massacre right after this. Now, back to the story. After the Guyanese army discovered the carnage at Jonestown on November 19, 1978, the deceased bodies were kept at the compound for nearly a week as investigators and DNA specialists attempted to identify each corpse. On November 25th, the bodies were loaded up onto a U.S. military plane and taken to Dover, Delaware, where proper DNA samples could be taken. The bodies that were easily identified were given back to their families so they could be given a funeral. Unclaimed or unidentifiable bodies stayed in Delaware for nearly four months. In late April 1979, over 400 bodies were loaded up on semi-trucks and driven across the country to Oakland, California. The bodies were taken to Evergreen Cemetery and given a proper burial, finally put to rest. The burial process for Congressman Ryan was much, much quicker, however. On November 21st, just three days after his death, his makeshift casket was draped with an American flag and was flown back to the United States. His body was laid to rest at the Golden Gate National Cemetery near his home in San Francisco. News of the Jonestown Massacre shocked the entire world. For most of the population outside of San Francisco, it was the first time they'd heard of Jim Jones or the People's Temple. They questioned how something like this could happen, how a man was able to convince a thousand people to leave their homes and give up everything 
including their lives. Leo Ryan's death was mostly overshadowed by the deaths of the over 900 People's Temple members who were poisoned. It was, after all, the largest loss of American civilian lives in U.S. history not related to a natural disaster or military attack, a title it held until the September 11th terrorist attacks. The sacrifice Ryan made by investigating Jonestown was acknowledged and praised, but to most of the public, he was only a footnote in the bizarre and tragic story. After the news from Jonestown broke, rumors began to emerge that Jones had put together a hit squad called the Angels to carry out certain assassinations in the event of his death. The FBI took the rumor seriously, and San Francisco's local government responded by ramping up security at the mayor's office. Many local politicians, including Governor Jerry Brown, Mayor George Moscone, and Board of Supervisors members Diane Feinstein and Harvey Milk, had previously supported the People's Temple. There was fear that the remaining Temple members might target them in retaliation for Congressman Ryan's actions. Unfortunately, just nine days after Jonestown, another senseless tragedy occurred. On November 27, 1978, Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk were assassinated by a disgruntled former Board of Supervisors member. The attack was completely unrelated to the Jonestown incident, but the timing immediately raised suspicions that the People's Temple had ordered their deaths. With two tragic attacks occurring in less than 10 days, San Francisco was in turmoil. To quell the rumors and conspiracy theories, Moscone and Milk's ties to the People's Temple were hushed up. As were the Temple's ties to the new mayor, Diane Feinstein. She was sworn in on December 4th, 1978, becoming the first female mayor of San Francisco. While they couldn't have foreseen what would happen in Jonestown, Many people believe the politicians who had supported Jim Jones should have been held accountable for their failure to investigate his crimes and abuses. Unfortunately, that never happened. After all the chaos and pain of November 1978, perhaps forgiving and forgetting was what San Francisco needed. The city had to find a way to move on, as did the People's Temple members who were able to make it home from Guyana alive. Only 87 Jonestown residents were able to escape the chaos of November 18, 1978. 16 of the 17 defectors that left with Congressman Ryan survived. Several other groups absconded into the jungle before the mass suicide began. Some deaf and elderly members simply didn't hear the announcement and came out of their cabins hours later to find hundreds of their friends lying dead. One temple member, Mike Prokes, had been sent to Georgetown on the morning of November 18th to deliver a briefcase full of money to the Soviet embassy. While he evaded the massacre, he sadly didn't live long after returning home to Modesto, California. On March 13th, 1979, Prokes held a press conference in the small hotel room he'd been staying in. He read a brief statement, then made his way to the bathroom. The news crews started to break down their equipment while Prokes was gone. And then they heard a gunshot. Mike Prokes had committed suicide. A note was found in his pocket. In its entirety, it read, don't accept anyone's analysis or hypothesis that this was the result of despondency over Jonestown. I could live and cope with despondency, 
nor was it an act of a disturbed or programmed mind, in case anyone tries to pass it off as that. The fact is that a person can rationally choose to die for reasons that are just, and that's just what I did. If my death doesn't prompt another look at what brought about the end of Jonestown, then life wasn't worth living anyway. Prokes was asserting that he didn't kill himself because he was brainwashed from his time in Jonestown. He was likely depressed and traumatized from the experience, and his grief seems to have been directed at the world he encountered when he came back from Jonestown, the world that had allowed such a tragedy to happen. Prokes sent other notes to journalists in the area explaining in depth why he thought Jonestown ended the way it did and why the United States government refused to release more documents about the tragedy. One note sent to San Francisco Chronicle reporter Herb Kane stated that the People's Temple wasn't successful because of their dedication to Jim Jones. It was successful because of the dedication the members had to each other. According to Prokes, the People's Temple was, quote, filled with outcasts and the poor who were looking for something they could not find in our society, end quote. He ends the note by saying, quote, No matter how you cut it, you just can't separate Jonestown from America because the People's Temple was not born in a vacuum, and despite the attempt to isolate it, neither did it end in one. Larry Layton, the Jonestown loyalist who had opened fire aboard the first plane of defectors, was held in a Guyanese prison for 18 months for attempted murder. He was found not guilty at the Guyanese courts, but he wasn't quite free yet. He was extradited to San Francisco and arrested on conspiracy charges in the spring of 1980. Prosecutors believed that Leighton knew Jones planned to poison the entire compound that day, and he helped Jones plan the attacks. Leighton's attorneys accused the government of using Leighton as a scapegoat because he was the only surviving member of Jones' inner circle. They needed to charge someone for everything that had happened, and he was the only one alive to bear the guilt. On March 3rd, 1987, Larry Layton was sentenced to concurrent life sentences for aiding and abetting the murder of Congressman Leo Ryan and conspiracy to murder an internationally protected person, Richard Dwyer, Deputy Chief of Mission for the United States in the Republic of Guyana. Layton served 18 years of that sentence. He was released in April 2002. To this day, Larry Layton was the only person tried and charged for involvement in the Jonestown massacre. Layton may have been convicted for Leo Ryan's assassination, but as far as we know, he wasn't the trigger man. The Red Brigade soldiers that executed the congressman were never officially identified. The FBI put together a list of 12 possible assassins, but they were never indicted as they'd all died in the massacre themselves. The government wasn't interested in charging them in absentia. They were no more to blame than any of the other victims in Jonestown. The real mastermind behind all 900 plus deaths was Jim Jones. When we come back, we'll look at the legacy of Jonestown and the lasting impact of Leo Ryan's investigation. Now, back to the story. Quote, I've heard other people say if Bhagwan asked them to kill themselves, they would do it. If Bhagwan asked them to kill someone else, they would do it. I don't know if my trust in him is that total. I would like it to be, and I don't believe he would ever do that. 
Those were the words of Shannon Jo Ryan, Leo Ryan's oldest daughter, speaking about the Indian mystic Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh in 1981. Bhagwan was the leader of what was called the Rajneesh Movement, a spiritual belief based on meditation and free love. The movement was started in the late 1960s in India, around the same time the People's Temple started to take off in California. But where Jones and the People's Temple were very socialist and anti-consumerist, the Rajneesh Movement was extremely in favor of capitalism. Bhagwan was accused of taking advantage of the idealism of Hindi culture and manipulating it into a money-making scheme. He was quickly ostracized within India and started looking for a new home in a country friendlier to his principles. In 1980, Bhagwan was able to procure massive donations from his wealthy European and American followers, which he used to buy a giant plot of land in Wasco County, Oregon. He built a compound with a very similar layout and structure to Jonestown. Shortly after the settlement was completed, Shannon Ryan joined the movement. Much like Jim Jones, Bhagwan committed numerous acts of assault and rape against his followers, but his violence didn't end at the compound's border. In 1984, the movement conducted the first bioterrorism attack in modern United States history. The group targeted local Wasco County restaurants and grocery stores with salmonella viruses, severely poisoning over 750 people. Miraculously, there were no deaths. Their goal was to swing an upcoming local election in favor of Rajneesh movement candidates by convincing the townsfolk that the current political leaders were unfit to keep the population safe. Instead, it only brought the movement under heavy investigation. In 1985, the movement thought it'd be wise to assassinate the person leading that investigation, U.S. attorney in Oregon, Charles Turner. The Rajneeshi planned on abducting and murdering Turner before his inquiry could draw to a close. But Turner already had high-ranking informants inside the movement as part of his investigation, so he was able to avoid any planned attempts on his life. Later, in 1985, Bhagwan and several other Rajneesh movement leaders were indicted on charges ranging from immigration fraud to illegal wiretapping to attempted murder and assault. So all of that is to say, yes, Leo Ryan's oldest daughter joined a violent anti-government cult. If you ask Shannon, she would staunchly defend Bhagwan and say the Rajneesh movement was not at all similar to Jonestown. In a 1981 interview, she said, quote, what Jim Jones created was a prison, and what Bhagwan has created is a way out of the prison of ordinary life. Just total freedom is what he is all about. Jones was trying to control people, while Bhagwan is trying to give people control of themselves. Jim Jones, however, also promised his followers freedom, independence, and a way out of ordinary life. Shannon Ryan's response is typical of a cult follower who's been conditioned to believe their leader's false doctrine. Thankfully, in the three decades since the Salmonella attack and attempted assassination, the Rajneesh movement, which is still active, has never committed another act of terrorism. Contrary to her older sister, Congressman Ryan's youngest daughter, Erin, followed in her father's path, albeit in a more pragmatic way. After graduating from Georgetown University in 1979 with a focus in international politics, 
Erin joined the CIA, she served as an intelligence officer for just over nine years. In 1993, she left the Central Intelligence Agency and attended the Culinary Institute of America. Erin quips that she left one CIA for another CIA. After a few years as a pastry chef, she sought another career change, this time turning to politics. She served as the principal consultant for the California State Senate Banking, Finance, and Insurance Committees from October 2000 to December 2008. This experience brought Erin to her next opportunity, working as the head legislative counsel for U.S. Congresswoman Jackie Speer. Yes, the same Jackie Speer who was beside Congressman Ryan in Jonestown. Just weeks after Speer returned to San Francisco in November 1978, still healing from her five gunshot wounds, she entered her name in the special election to fill Ryan's now vacant Congress seat. She was unsuccessful and the seat fell to former Ryan Chief of Staff, G.W. Holsinger. But just a year later, in 1980, Speer won an election to the San Mateo County Board of Supervisors. She ran against a 20-year incumbent and won by a large margin. In 1986, Speer won the state assembly seat in California's 19th district. She was re-elected five more times until she had exceeded the state term limits and was no longer allowed to run. So in 1998, she ran for the state Senate instead. She held office until, once again, she reached the term limit in 2006. As of the recording of this episode, she continues to occupy this seat and has won each election by substantial margins. Throughout her time as an elected official, Speer has worked effortlessly to uphold the same ideals she shared with Leo Ryan. Congressman Leo Ryan's life and death affected so many lives, either for better or worse. It's impossible to fault him for his decision to investigate Jonestown. No one could have anticipated the tragedy his visit would instigate, but this is a rare situation where someone with the best of motives unintentionally triggered a massive disaster. We have to wonder, what if? What would have happened if Leo Ryan didn't visit Jonestown? Would the 918 people at the compound have lived to see the sunset on November 18th, 1978? Presumably, yes. But would they have lived on for much longer after that? Maybe not. Joan's behavior and drug use started spiraling out of control after the move to Guyana. He had already practiced a mass suicide scenario long before Ryan's visit, and it was only a matter of time before some real or imagined threat pushed him to put it into action. Let's imagine that Ryan's visit occurred exactly as it did, but Jones didn't decide to order the assassination and mass suicide once he left. If Ryan and his group of defectors had made it back to the U.S. unharmed, how would the situation back in Jonestown play out? It's hard to see a possibility where the U.S. government doesn't go after Jones. The defectors would have detailed all the abuse that was occurring in the isolated jungle compound, shattering whatever was left of Jim Jones' reputation as a benevolent hippie preacher. The public outcry alone would force their hand into infiltrating the compound. There are a few possibilities for what that infiltration would look like. To collect evidence, the CIA and FBI might have sent undercover agents into the compound or turned one of Jones' inner circle against him. 
this may have succeeded in bringing charges against Jones, but there's also a good possibility the ever-paranoid cult leader would have grown suspicious and launched into his mass suicide doomsday plan. An overt invasion by the U.S. or Guyanese military probably wouldn't have gone any better. Jones had already prepped the cult for that kind of attack as well. The Red Brigade was armed and ready, and there would have been massive casualties on both sides. It's difficult to imagine any scenario where Jim Jones is brought down without any innocent lives being claimed. The People's Temple was going to live and die with Jones. The temple members were doomed the second they stepped foot in Guyana. Let's turn our focus to the other variable in the equation. What would have happened to Congressman Ryan if he made it back unscathed? He likely would have followed the same process as his previous fact-finding missions at the Watts Public Schools and Folsom Prison. In those cases, he used what he learned to draft legislation that addressed the problems at their root. After coming back from Jonestown, he may have drafted a bill to help families remove their relatives from dangerous cults or set up a committee to investigate allegations of abuse within religious organizations. Whatever ended up happening in Jonestown, if Ryan lived, he would probably be heralded as a hero for his efforts. For comparison, we can look at Jackie Spear. Although her role in the Jonestown trip obviously isn't the only reason she succeeded in politics, it certainly had a hand in bolstering her popularity. Ryan's political future probably would have gained a similar boost. Ryan would have been front and center in the Democratic Party at the beginning of the 1980s. He could have achieved a leadership position or even run for president. The conservative movement that began with Ronald Reagan's election in 1980 would have made it difficult for Ryan to win a presidential election, but he might have tried. That brings us to another aspect of this event we need to look at, the cultural relevance of Jonestown and the People's Temple. The Jonestown Massacre marked a turning point between the counterculture movements of the 60s and 70s and the following decade of extreme conservatism. Gone were the days of Jimmy Carter planting trees and putting solar panels on the White House roof. In came Ronald Reagan's conservative morality and trickle-down economics. Everything Jim Jones opposed, capitalism, authority, and class division, was coming back into vogue. Even if, by some miraculous chance, the People's Temple continued to survive into the 80s, it wouldn't have enjoyed the popularity and influence it had in the 60s and 70s. It would have slowly decayed until it completely collapsed. Even now, the Jonestown Massacre doesn't have the same cultural meaning as it once did. What was once the most devastating event in American history has become a bizarre historical footnote. Of course, Jim Jones is still referenced in culture and movies, but Leo Ryan is all but forgotten. Jones by far is the most well-remembered person in this story. The bad men always are. But it was because of Leo Ryan's bravery that we remember Jim Jones for what he was, a liar, an abuser, and ultimately a murderer. If he intended to save the People's Temple's reputation with his drastic actions, he failed spectacularly.
Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back next Monday with a new episode. And thanks to Greg and Vanessa for joining us on these episodes. Thanks for having us. You can find more episodes of Assassinations as well as all the other podcast shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This special episode of Assassinations and Cults is written by Richie Ward and stars Kate Leonard, Greg Polson, Vanessa Richardson, and Bill Thomas. 